towards others. Now, verse number four is key tonight for us. Look at those first two words. Now, remember where we were. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were steeped in the things of the world. We were walking uh, according to the course of this world. And our conversation was all there until verse 4, but God. Aren't you glad that God butted into your life tonight? Say amen. Because here the change begins. But God, who is rich in mercy and great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I guarantee you tonight, if man had anything to do with his own salvation, he'd brag about it somehow. So God took that all out. It's not an award. These young people that have ministered to us the last several weeks, whether singing or playing or different things that they have done, they've worked for several months now, most of the school year, getting ready for competition in order to earn or win a prize. Salvation is not something that's earned. Uh, we don't, you can't earn a gift. There's none of these things that you earn. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before hath ordained that we should walk in. And read the story, I love reading mission stories and such as that, but I read a story of two men in Europe and a missionary had met uh, one of these men but, uh, as young boys. And it's sort of funny that we had the sheep thing with Brother Connor up tonight. As young boys, these two brothers got in trouble for stealing sheep in Europe. The punishment, the penalty was they had their head, their forehead uh, was branded. They, they branded an ST, sheep thief. And everywhere they went, everyone knew who they were. One of the brothers just got tired of dealing with it. He said, I'm not staying here. I'm not facing this all my life. He became bitter. He became cold. He moved away. He lived years out in another place, isolated, away from everyone else. Uh, just a depressed, discouraged man. Little contact with the world. And he died at a young age. His brother said, I'm going to stay here. And I'm going to face my past. I'm going to face what I've done. I'm going to repay. And I'm going to become a model citizen. I'm going to do these things. And all, all of it, he, he had met Christ. And he knew what he had done was wrong. And so he stayed in that village. He stayed in that town. And time passed. A traveler one day saw him in the city. And, and he saw ST on his forehead. And he asked one of the citizens of the city, a village. He said, what, what in the world does that stand for? He said, you know, that happened so long ago, I can't remember. I can't remember what that was for. He said, but knowing that man and the way he lives, it's an abbreviation for saint. He outlived. Another, in the same book, different chapter, talked about a man going to the Fiji Islands. He was a businessman. He was not a Christian. 
He met uh, one of the chiefs there in the Fiji Islands, and he said this, I am so sorry that the missionaries got here first. He said, they have filled your mind with all of this Jesus stuff, and nobody believes that anymore. That's just a bunch of, uh, of stuff that somebody wrote. We're tired in our country, in our side. We're tired of hearing all of that. And he said, I'm sorry they got here and they have brainwashed you and they did it only as a means to, to, to make money. And uh, the chief looked at him and through an interpreter pointed across the valley and he said, you see that stone over there? And he looked and back and forth with the interpreter conversation. He said, yeah, he said, that's where we crushed the skulls of our enemies. He said, do you see the stovepipe next to it? And there was a furnace there. And he said, yes. He said, that is where we cooked their bodies. He said, you better be glad the good missionaries got here with the gospel of Christ. Because if they hadn't gotten here before you, you would be dinner. Why do I tell you the story? Jesus makes a difference. Jesus makes a difference. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 13, verse 23, it says, can, a, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard change his spots? No. Do you realize this tonight? You don't have the power to change yourself either. Any good thing that has happened in our lives doesn't come by us. It comes by God. And the truth, man is a sinner, he's lost, undone, separated from God. He needs something done. And it's something he could never do for himself. And God knew that. So Jesus makes the difference for all fallen men. Notice if you would, you have your bulletin there. Let's step through our outline if we could as we're looking at this. What a difference Jesus makes. Now let's rehearse for just a second. We were in Ephesians 1 long enough, but let's remember. Paul said, we're praising the Lord. We're praising the Lord for salvation. We're praising the Lord for uh, the fact that he's sovereign. We're praising the Lord for his spirit and what his spirit does. On the heels of that, now we jump into chapter 2. And he said, listen, God makes a difference. Jesus makes a difference. Notice the pitiful nature of man's sin that is first described in chapter 2. First of all, in verse number 1, the lost man lives as a wretched life. He lives a wretched life. It says that he's dead and separated from God in a sea of sin. We could go to Isaiah 59 and verse 2 talks about that. But look at verse 12, if you would. That at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a lot of people living that way today. Now, the definition, if we were to study it for a while tonight, of wretched, we're seeing a lost men live a wretched life. What does that mean? Deeply afflicted, dejected, distressed in body or mind, extremely or deplorably bad. You say, preacher, I wasn't all that bad. Listen, sin is sin. God is no respecter of persons, neither is he a respecter of sin. You know what we've done? We've packaged sin. We, we've set it up. These aren't so bad. And these are a little worse. And now these over here, these are the big boys. And you know what we often convince ourselves? If we don't do the big boys, 
if we're not guilty of these, then somehow we're better. But the Bible says this about every man when he is without Christ, that he lives a wretched life. We're the ones that categorize the sins of man. Look in verse 2 and 3. He lived a wretched life, but lost men live also a wayward life. They're pushed about by, and we, before our salvation, were in this category, pushed about by the flesh, by the world, by the devil. I want you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 8. Interesting verse. In the middle of a message, John chapter 8 and verse, come to verse 44, if you would. This would definitely get the attention if I said this to you tonight with the way it was said in John chapter 8. The message to the congregation of people that are gathered. Ye are of your father the devil. That's going to go over smooth, isn't it? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. Every lost sinner is wretched. Every lost sinner has a wayward soul. And we know what the end of the wayward soul is. The end of the wayward soul is death. He's wayward. I have, that's interesting. Year of your father of the devil. It's almost as if it were an insult to begin. You're going to get a lot of attention with that. Wretched. They live wretched. They live wayward, away from God. Look at verse number 3 and see. We see that lost men live under the wrath of God. Oh, if there's anywhere in my life that I don't want to live, it's under the wrath of God. And we don't, as Christians, we don't have to live there. Notice in John chapter 3, back if you would, just a few pages. We're familiar with the chapter pretty thoroughly. But verse 36, let's remind ourselves. It says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, if you want to see the wrath of God and how vile the wrath of God, I use that word because I don't know of a different way to describe it. If you want to know how massive his wrath is, look at the cross. Because when the sin of mankind was put on the body of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God was placed upon him because he was paying for the sins of man. But the wrath of God abideth on him. On who? On those that are without Christ. Every person outside the shelter of the blood of Jesus Christ is literally under the wrath of God. You say, well, I know people that are outside of the Christ right now, they sure don't appear to be under the wrath of God. Give it time. Give it time. There's the pitiful nature of man's sin. Look at number two, if you would. The glorious provision of the Savior. And that's found in verse four through verse number six. What did he do? All right, we've seen man's condition and how bad man is. Now let's look at the glorious provision of the Savior. 
Because it was never God's will for us to be separated from him. And so verse number four, he gave us love. God's love God loves the sinner with an everlasting, undying love. You say, God doesn't love sinners. Yes, God loves sinners. God didn't love you till you get saved. No, that's not scriptural. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says when we were unlovely, when we were steeped in our sins. I listened to a fellow preach yesterday. Uh, I'm guessing he is probably late 70s to early 80s. And portion of his message, he was talking, he was talking about being in prison and in jail. He was talking about being a bootlegger and running whiskey. And he was describing out his life. And then he backed up and he bowed over the pulpit. And all of these years later, after salvation, he he began to weep. And he looked back up and tears running down his face. And he said, But God saved me out of that. Now, uh, aren't you glad that failure is not final with God? To think that a man now is pastoring a church and has for 40 years? How would that look on his resume? God loves us. Some of you have heard of the Pacific Garden Mission a branch of that in, in Michigan and in Chicago. There was a man in Chicago that was headed to Lake Michigan and he had every thought of taking his life. His name was Harry Monroe. As he passed by the mission, he was overly intoxicated and fell into the building. And by that, the story says that he literally fell into the building as he leaned on the front doors. He fell in. And he stepped in and was there for a little while. A long story short tonight, he didn't kill himself. He didn't go to the lake that night. But he did receive Jesus Christ even in his altered state. And Jesus Christ makes a difference. Within a matter of four years, his life had changed and he had studied And he had been mentored. And he wasn't one who showed up at the mission. He was one that preached at the mission. And he preached for years. When he died, they planned just a normal viewing. And they had to postpone the actual funeral service. And they said, for over two days, the line never thinned. And the newspaper said this about him. The most influential man in the city. Now how did he become that? Because Jesus makes a difference. Where does the difference start? Verse number four, God gave his love. Verse number five, he gave us life. He made us alive in him. We we died. We died to sin. We died to Satan. We died to self. And we became alive in the Lord story of a notorious fellow in the community, a vile man, died, was put into his coffin, and then at the end of the service put in the hearse, and they were making his way to, making their way to 
the burial site, they passed a tavern where he spent a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of days of his life. But they didn't stop there. It had no appeal to him. They passed by gambling joints that uh, he had won and lost fortunes of money in. But they didn't stop. It had no appeal to him. The theaters that he had attended and the places of recreation as they drove through the city on the way to the cemetery, they passed them all. Everybody in the line knew. That's where he spent his time. But those things had no draw for him because he was dead. Now when we look at that, God's word, his glory, his music, his people, all of these things become precious to us when we're saved because Jesus makes a difference. Think of Lazarus tonight. All the commotion outside the tomb. The sisters talking to Jesus. And he had no idea what all was going on. Remember, Jesus asked the, probably the most important question in the New Testament. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Believest thou this? He, wouldn't, he didn't hear any of that. He was in the tomb. None of it affected him. He was dead. But when Jesus comes, notice what the scripture says. It gives us love, but he gives us life. When Jesus comes, he gives new life. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And when, listen, when Jesus got up, we got up as well. Because he gives to us life. And then look at verse number six. He gave us a lift. We had been seated in, we had been seated in the heavenly with Christ. Colossians chapter one, verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is, in, uh, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let's understand this tonight. For every one of us here who are saved, we are as much in heaven tonight. Our place is reserved there, and nothing will happen to it. We've looked at the pitiful nature of man. We've looked at the glorious provision of the Savior. Look at number three, if you would, please. Precious promise that he's made to the saints. Makes a difference, this promise. Aren't you glad tonight that you can trust God's word? You ever had somebody tell you something they didn't follow through with, broke their word, and let you down? The glory of Christ is this. He never breaks a promise to us. The precious promise to the saints. What are those that Paul is talking about? Look at this in verse number 7. There's the promise of a new destination. We're finally going to be home in glory. And when we arrive there, we will have eternity to enjoy the blessings of God. I think we'll sit down and enjoy one blessing. And we'll praise and we'll thank Him for it. And then suddenly we'll see another blessing of heaven. And we'll... We'll get on the bandwagon of praising and thanking the Lord for that. And all of eternity it will be thankfulness for one blessing after another blessing after another blessing. We've done a lot of funerals. And for a long while, I would speak of things and just even, even in my own study preparing for times such as that. I would want to encourage people by the things that are in heaven. Miss Mary McKenzie's mother told us 
there in the house. She was on her deathbed and didn't have but a few moments. A little squeaky voice. And she, she said, when you, when you come, I'm going to be swinging on the pearly gates. Now, the Bible talks about the streets of gold. Uh, <laughs> I don't know a lot about gold. I don't know that I could appreciate that very much until I get there. The Bible talks about the rivers of the river of life and the fruit and all the things that go on. And I, I used to try to focus on that, but you know, the last several years, what has become more precious to me than the things that are in heaven, the things that aren't there. I so look forward to living in a world without the curse. That preacher I told you about yesterday, as he ended his message, he cut out, and I'm going to tell you this, I can sing better than him. I'm not going to prove it, but... And he cut into singing the song, Never Grow Old. The Bible says there'll be no more death, no more disease. Doing all that I can right now, I need your help and he needs your help to encourage Dave Kelly. Uh, Dave, for some of you that were not here, Dave had colon cancer years ago. And part of the issue is the portion of the colon that they took out, and then when they had to reconnect that, it made an unnatural curve or twist. And it seems that that has become a weak spot in scar tissue, and that's where the blockage and Dave's told me several times in the last couple of weeks, and we've looked at his calendar, it's happening every six months. Every six months for nearly two years, Dave ends up in the hospital. I was at the hospital with him the other day, and the nurse popped the door open and was getting ready to put the tube down his nose, back into his stomach again. He looked at me and said, Preacher, I'm tired of this. I didn't tell him this, but you know what I wanted to say? I'm tired of it for you. I'll be so glad not to have to make hospital calls. I'll be so glad not to have to preach funerals. I'll be so glad not to take phone calls of people whose hearts are so full and heavy of sorrow. The Bible says there's not going to be any separation. There's not going to be any crying. There's not going to be any tears. I have, in the last two years, become more thankful for those things. You see, those things are things that I know about. I have a hard time in this small mind of mine understanding what it will be to be on streets of pure as gold. And for the life of me, I can't understand why the Bible talks about the foundation of heaven and the jewels that are on the foundation. I built a few things in my life, and I really didn't care what the foundation looked like. But the Bible goes into great detail, even with the foundation, the detail of what God has made for us. They're wonderful things, but there's so many of them I can't wrap my mind around because I don't know anything about them. I'm glad for the things that aren't there. Look at verse 8 and 9. There's a new destination in verse number 7. There's a new designation in verse number 8 and 9. It's through faith and grace alone. 
No religion, no good deed, no church membership, no baptism, no clean living, no family association. None of those things produce salvation. No one will ever get to heaven and be able to brag about how they did it. Old man had a company that wanted to buy his house. He lived on the corner of a very up-and-coming area. All the property had been sold and repurchased and, and developed and condominiums and houses all over. And here was just this little rugged little house on the corner. An old man lived in it. Businessman came to him one day and he said, what will it take to buy you out? And the old man just smarted off because he really didn't want to move. He said, $100,000. And the businessman said, done. Shook hands on it. Gave him $10,000 down payment until the rest of The old guy sat down and he began to look at what he had. He said, boy, I hate to take advantage of the man like that. And he went out and had the house painted. He had new flooring put in. He had things updated in a little bit of a way. And the old the businessman came back a few days later and gave him the rest of the pay. And the old man pointed at what he had done. He said, don't you have a great house here now? And he said, I'm not. I'm tearing this all down. It's not anything that we've done. God doesn't want you and I fixing up our lives. He wants to tear us down so that he can rebuild us. Because when he rebuilds us, he rebuilds us into his image and into his likeness. I want you to notice what Paul says, but now, but now are ye saved. The longer we are called sinner, no longer are we called sinner. Now we can be called saint. Look at verse number 10, if you would please. There's a new direction. After Jesus comes and after the soul is saved, he changes the life and he sets the sinner on a new path, a new direction. James chapter 2, verse 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Notice as we finish up this particular section down toward verse number 10. We are his workmanship. You know what that means? We are his masterpiece. You know, Ellie came up to me Sunday and she had a large sheet of paper and she colored all sorts of things on it and she folded it several different ways and she said, Pop, I did this for you. And so I opened it up. What are you laughing at? I hear somebody laugh. I opened it up. Let me, now, let me say this. It wasn't a Picasso to anybody else. And it's too big to go in my Bible, but I've got one there that her daddy drew for me when he was in church one day. He was a little kid when he did it. And it was a little piece of paper. But I told her, I said, Ellie, I'm, I'm going to fold that back. And it was, she had drawn a picture of me up here. I said, well, Put it, I'm going to fold it, I'm going to put it in the back of my Bible. 
To you, it may not be much. The Bible says this, we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Sunday morning, God willing, we're going to be looking at natural reactions and we're going to be studying in Job chapter 1. Remember what God said to Satan? Hast thou considered my servant Job? Look at him. Do you get this tonight? That's what Paul is saying we are to God. We are his workmanship. It means we're his masterpiece. And God has determined that he will receive the greatest glory from you and I. Isn't it amazing how ladies, some of you ladies in here have a diamond on your finger? Did you know that diamond in its natural state, you would not put it on your finger? It's ugly. Many people have passed over a diamond thinking it was a stone, just a rock. But when you put it in the master craftsman's hands, and he knows how to cut it, and he knows how to break it, and he knows how to polish it, it becomes a thing that finds its reside in crowns, in rings, and the values of it. Have you ever been to D.C. and looked at the Hope Diamond? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Don't you want God to be able to look at you and say, oh, look at Him. Look at her. That's my masterpiece there. And that's what Paul was saying to the church at Ephesus, to the saints and the faithful. And it would never have been that way if it weren't for verse number four. Remember what verse four said? But God. You would be a rock tonight. A stone of no value. But God, through Jesus Christ and salvation, has made us his masterpiece. Joy and thrill in the thought that God gets glory from you as he looks at your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Paul's writing. Help us as we go step by step through it. Help us to see tonight. And before we pillow our head, would you draw to mind the reasons that we have to rejoice and to praise you and thank you by the difference that you've made in our lives. We didn't 